Well, again, today we're going to deviate from our X series and do something for the new year that I have been uh, thinking about that I thought was important to share. And so um, we want to talk about a New Year's resolution today. And we want to start by reminding you of the whole phrase, what would Jesus do? For those of you who have been studying with us uh, on Wednesday evenings, either in person or online, you know we introduced this topic uh, this past Wednesday when we were talking about the incarnation of Christ and that sort of thing. And the world is in a very bad place right now, as you know. Uh, some experts, such as they are, right, have said that maybe issues that were brought up in the year 2023 have been kicked down the road and will probably cause problems in 2024. So, for example, we do have two wars happening at this moment, and the U.S. has threatened to be involved with either one of those. Uh, they both have scary enemies attached to them. Uh, what will become of us? Uh, we can talk about the uh, open borders and the overwhelming of our welfare system, and we can talk about crime and looting and that sort of thing that has become weird in the United States, and we can talk about the mental health crisis. There are so many things happening. What will become of us? And while it's true that all these things are happening, all these things are very uncomfortable for us, for whatever reason, the Lord has still allowed us to have an awful lot of order in our lives. I mean, for the most part, we have pretty cushy lives, right? We have it pretty good. Uh, for the most part, we don't really have food insecurity. We know where our next meal is coming from. Uh, we know that, uh, I mean, as far as we can tell, our houses will not be broken into today. Uh, we don't feel like we're living every moment with that possibility. And so most of us have a great deal of order in our lives still. So since we have the ability to choose for ourselves how we should live, what should we do? And we're asking the question today, well, what would Jesus do? Not just what would Jesus do, like 2,000 years ago he'd wear a robe and sandals. When I get past all the cultural stuff and say, what would Jesus do if he was in your situation? If he had the money you have, the house you have, the spouse you have, the job you have, the job skills you have, what would Jesus do if he were in your situation? And so today we want to process that a little bit. And I'm also hoping that when we dismiss the service, you'll go home and spend some time today and tomorrow uh, sorting through what you have on your note page. By the way, if there's anybody who wishes they had a note page to follow along today, uh, Bob Casper is standing by. If you raise your hand, he'll bring it to you. Uh, but for the rest of us, here we go. According to 1 Peter 2.21, we have this text of Scripture from the Apostle Peter. For even unto this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So the question is, are you following in Jesus' steps? And if you ask yourself, well, I wonder what Jesus would do, then yes, that's the question that we're dealing with this morning. How shall we follow in Jesus' steps? And of course, this is a really big deal, because everywhere in Scripture, we see that we are supposed to be following in Jesus' steps. So just to give you an idea of how this comes up in Scripture, from John 1.43, Jesus says to Philip, follow me. Matthew 4.19, Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, follow me. Matthew 9.9, Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. And also the parallel text in Mark, follow me. And Luke, follow me. Matthew 8.22, to the rejected disciples, uh, Lord, I will follow you, but let me wait till my dad dies and then I'll start to follow you. I will follow you, but I have some real estate I need to check on and then I'll follow you. And to the rejected disciples, Jesus says, follow me. And in the parallel text in Luke 9, 
follow me. And then in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me in Mark. Follow me in Luke. Follow me. Matthew 19, 21 to the rich young ruler. You remember not so long before Jesus went to the cross. He told the rich young ruler, sell what you have, give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. In Mark's passage, he says, take up the cross and follow me. And in Luke, follow me. In John chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus says, if any man serve me, let him follow me. In John chapter 21, verse 19, to Peter for telling his martyrdom after Jesus' resurrection, the Lord tells Peter, you follow me. And Peter says, what about John? And the Lord basically says, well, never mind, John, you follow me. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, the apostle Paul says, all of you also follow me. And he explains why it's safe to follow him, because in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be followers of me, even as I also am a follower of Christ. So I'll follow Christ. I'll do it his way. And you follow me. You do it my way. And so once again, we are ultimately following Jesus when we follow the apostles in Philippians 3:17, be followers together of me in second Thessalonians 3, 7. Yourselves know how you ought to follow us. You ought to follow us. Same thing in second Corinthians 3, 9. We make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. So it comes up all the time. Peter said we should follow in Jesus steps. Jesus kept telling you, ready, follow me, follow me, follow me, do it my way. And so now we have to ask ourselves the question, what precisely is your way, Lord? Oh, what would Jesus do? And so that's what we're trying to process for a little while together this morning. We have two big ideas here. What would Jesus do with his time and energy? So sort of schedule, right? And then the second big idea is what would Jesus do with his financial resources? And that tends to be where our planning uh, comes to bear on our lifestyle, our our manner of life. And so what would Jesus do with his time and energy? Now we are starting as you see in the yellow font here, with introducing the idea that uh, we have about 19 hours of every day, 19 out of 24 hours of every day, are already accounted for. They are not exactly up to you what you're going to do. Now, you have some say over these things, but you might call these non-discretionary hours, 19, because you're supposed to say, uh, they tell us, have seven hours of sleep, Most of us are going to have to work about 10 hours a day, including commute time. And most of us are going to have to deal with food for about two hours a day. And by the way, dealing with food for only two hours a day is a real luxury because in previous centuries and millennia, food was like the entire game. Everything was about food in those days. Now we have it down to a science and maybe we can handle it in about two hours a day. But as you can see, for 19 out of every 24 hours in a typical work day, you don't have a lot of choice. You have to eat, you have to sleep, and you have to work. For most of us, that's not really up to us to choose. All right, so here are some questions. What would Jesus do? Would Jesus get the recommended six or seven hours of sleep most nights? If you say Yes, then okay. You say, no, I don't think he would get six or seven hours of sleep. Well, how much do you think he would get? And what should you do? Um, Somebody said, well, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, Okay, but you're not Jesus. You should be pretty careful about that. Uh, Maybe Jesus didn't get as much sleep as you require, but evidently, You get pretty grouchy if you don't get six or seven hours of sleep. And I don't know how it's God's will for you to be grouchy. 
So what should you do with sleep? It's non-discretionary, but you have some say over it. I have one friend, and he is he's going to be in big trouble with me if he doesn't change this. He told me he's been sleeping like three and a half, four, four and a half hours a night. This is not sustainable. You cannot do that. Jesus would not do that, I'm quite sure. If he did do it, you're not Jesus. All right, what would Jesus eat most days? Including shopping, cooking, and cleanup, which all takes time. And the questions are good questions. Would he eat well? Uh, Would he eat enjoyable food? Would Jesus allow himself to have carbohydrates? Would he? I don't know. But whatever you think, you should order your life along those lines. I think you should dare to ask the question, I wonder if Jesus would approve of my third piece of cherry pie. And if he doesn't, well, I don't think you should have the third piece. By the way, the second and third piece never taste as good as the first one anyway. That's true. Uh, what would Jesus eat? Who would he eat with? You know, family dinners are awfully important. And also, having meals with people is awfully important. Who would he eat with? And last of all, what should you do? What would Jesus do if he had, you know, a food budget like mine, a refrigerator like mine? What would he do? Uh, third question. Would Jesus work at his career or farm for 10 or more hours each workday in order to secure his own food and shelter and clothing? Uh, Would he work or would he be lazy? What would Jesus do? Because whatever that is, that's what you should do. Would Jesus be lazy? Would he work pretty hard? Would he work kind of a lot of hours? Would his employer and customers like his work? Would they say, yeah, he's a good worker? And by the way, remember... He started out as a carpenter's apprentice under his father. So he did work as a carpenter. Uh, When the people were questioning his wisdom, they said, is not this the carpenter? Not just, is not this the son of the carpenter? They said, is not this the carpenter? So he did work. He worked with his hands and he had customers. Did they like his work? Do they like your work where you work? Would his workmates and customers think of him as kind? Would they think of him as a person of integrity? Would they think of him as a person of joy? Was he a joy to be around? Uh, Is that how your customers and coworkers think of you? What would Jesus do with these 19 hours of non-discretionary time in the typical workday? You should work through that. And however Jesus is, you should follow in his steps. You should follow him. Um... Here are the seven things that even though we call this, you know, discretionary and non-discretionary, even if we were talking about discretionary time, and by the way, if 19 hours are non-discretionary, then we're down to five hours of discretion. You get to choose what you're going to do with these five hours of your typical workday, just five. And even though we say that's discretionary five hours, look at all the things we have to do in those five hours. It's not very discretionary if you have to do all this, right? Seven things that most believers have to do. So start with this one. Number one, every believer must, this is must, must meditate warmly in God's presence for some period of time each day. So tomorrow you will start, if you don't have a better idea, you will start in You're praying through the scripture, New Testament. Tomorrow, you're going to meditate on a very important passage of scripture. You're going to talk to the Lord about it. You must do something like that every day. And on top of that, 
you have to have momentary flashes of thoughts about God throughout the whole day. So you have to do that in that five-hour block of time. You have to do those things as well. Number two, the typical believer must build nurturing bonds with his spouse. If he's married, you have to build nurturing bonds with your spouse. You, you have to. And the same thing if you have children. The typical believer must build nurturing bonds with their own children every day. And by the way, just because your children are adults doesn't mean you stop doing that. And then come along grandchildren and it never ends. And you have to build nurturing bonds with these important people. You are obligated to do that. Uh, the fourth item here, every believer must gather with fellow believers regularly, like in church, Bible study, Wednesday nights, whatever, uh, for those men who are able to uh, get their mandatory six or seven hours of sleep and still come to our IHOP breakfast Tuesday mornings at six o'clock. You should do that if you can. Every believer must gather with fellow believers regularly. Like how regularly? Well, certainly on Sundays, if at all possible, but hopefully more than that. Uh, Gather with fellow believers regularly, plus somehow privately serve other believers and socialize with other believers and converse with other believers, believers in need and believers that you have a special relationship with. They are especially dear to you. And you have to do that on some sort of a regular basis. So you have to do that. It's a discretionary time, but you have five hours. And part of that five hours is you have to gather with the Christians and also be a friend to fellow believers in need and a friend to fellow believers who are just dear to you. You have to. You have to. The fifth item on the list, every believer must frequently enjoy some time of tranquility and rest or leisure activity. You have to. You'll fall apart. Uh, you, You can't just hammer away on a log with a dull axe. You have to take time to sharpen that axe or you're going to wear yourself out. So whatever that is, we are in the midst of a mental health crisis in our country right now. And you have to take time for leisure. We, we have an expression that we say sometimes that if you kill off the mama, you kill off the baby. There are a whole bunch of people in the world that you're supposed to be taking care of and taking under your wing. But if you fall apart, then we just lost a laborer in our pool of labor and we can't lose anymore. So don't you fall apart. You take time to rest and do leisure activity or you will fall apart. That's what the Bible sometimes calls Sabbath. You can't just keep hacking away with a dull axe. You have to take time to sharpen yourself. And that includes just rest. Typically in a comfortable rhythm of daily or weekly rest. In other words, what works for you and what honestly works for you. Probably you're going to find that you better take a certain block of time every evening and do nothing. Or you better take a certain block of time on the weekend and do your leisurely activity or you're not going to be well. So that's probably what you're going to find, a rhythm. Uh, There will be a pattern and you should observe the pattern. The sixth item on the list. Every believer must attempt to initiate conversations and relationships with non-believers for gospel witness. You have to. In that five hours of discretionary time, you have to squeeze time in there somehow. Set aside time to talk to unbelievers and give them an opportunity to come to Jesus. You have to be a witness for Christ. You have to. And the seventh item there, the typical believer must perform everyday housekeeping chores and property maintenance. 
You kind of have to. Uh, it's necessary that you do your dishes. If not, you're just going to be gross. You have to do these things. And so it's necessary. It can't be put off forever. And eventually the chores and property maintenance are going to become a force to reckon with if your house is falling down around you. All right. So even though we say you have five hours of discretionary time, do whatever you want. Sheesh. We have seven things we have to do. It's not exactly do whatever you want, right? All right. But besides these seven musts, there will also be other non-essential endeavors that you'll have an interest in. You might wish to escort your children to little league, to music practice, to whatever it is you escort your children to, and that's fine. You might wish to take on a second job because that would change something in your financial trajectory. You might wish to take an extra course online or a degree online or whatever. Uh, you might wish to take up some sort of a study of a new language. Maybe you want to learn how to play an instrument. Maybe you want to do gardening. Maybe you want to rebuild an antique airplane in your garage. I don't know. But remember that... All of these essential and non-essential activities squeeze into five hours of your typical workday and they compete toe-to-toe with other priorities in your life. So you have to sort through them. What would Jesus do with these, these five hours in a typical workday? What would he do? And whatever the answer to that question is, what would he do if he were a person like me? Whatever the answer to that question is, you should pursue that. And by the way, you'll say, well, how do I know? And the answer is, would you dare to ask in prayer? You say, Lord, I just want to follow in your steps. What would you do? Because whatever you do, I want to do. Just dare to ask, and I think you'll do okay. James, the apostle, said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask, and it shall be given. You can take that to the bank. Ask. And you'll be approximately right. You'll stand before the Lord someday and say, Lord, I never really knew if I should do such and such a thing. And the Lord said, you asked me for wisdom. I gave it to you. You did about the right thing. What would Jesus do with his financial reserves, his financial resources? And this is a really important question because it affects how many hours a day we work. It affects the kind of education we get. It's a really big deal. And so what would Jesus do with financial resources? And we're talking now about his manner of living financially. You know, the lifestyle to which you are accustomed, as they say in divorce court, I think. I've never been to divorce court. Um, In his apprenticeship years, would Jesus excel? Would you? Well, we don't usually call it apprenticeship. We usually call it education. But what would Jesus do if he was in your school system, if he was in your school situation? What would he do? Whatever that is, you should do that. Would Jesus require a residence with a lot of square footage or beautiful amenities in order to feel emotionally well, in order to feel satisfied? Do you require a lot of square footage? Somebody told me that they visited Bob Marley's house in the Caribbean. They said his house, his whole house was the size of my kitchen and he made millions of dollars. I wonder how many Christians would put up with that kind of nonsense, right? Well, do you require luxury? Would Jesus require luxurious food, automobiles, travel, home furnishings, hobbies, toys, or valuables in order to feel emotionally well and satisfied? Does he require luxury? Does he require a house with a view? Do you? What would Jesus do if he were in your situation? And whatever that is, that's what you should do. 
Would Jesus choose if given the choice? Not everybody has a choice, right? Well, if you're born in a war-torn country, you have no choice. But if given a choice, would Jesus choose to raise his family in a village where drunkenness, violence, and perversion is normalized and praised? Is that the kind of village you're choosing to raise your children in? What would Jesus do? What should you do? A lot of times we don't exactly know the answers, but would you dare to ask the question in the presence of the Lord? I think that's the important thing, don't you? On this whole financial strategy for life, would Jesus minimize his spending? Like, why would I do that? I want to spend more. Would Jesus intentionally minimize his spending as well as his saving? Because that's always it. Should I spend it or should I save it? For a Christian, there's a third option that's really, really important. Should I spend it? Should I save it? Should I give it? See, that's the thing. So, would Jesus minimize his spending and saving for his true priorities in the world? Would he reduce his material comforts and his future financial prospects to the minimal amount that wisdom would allow? Would he? I'm asking you. I, you know, rhetorical question. Would he do that? Whatever he would do, I think that's what you should do. In yellow font there, should you reduce your spending and saving both to maximize your giving? Should you do that? And I have a little parenthetical note that's very important. We recall that divine wisdom might motivate certain believers to have and use wealth to keep their wealth including the accoutrements of wealth for gospel influence. Sometimes I think, what would happen if uh, when I'm too old to do my normal pastoral stuff, I sold all my property and somebody else donated something and we got a house on the beach with a view and we had Bible studies there four nights a week and discipleship and mentoring And we would invite people. I was one time talking to somebody and they said, would you like to come over? Would you and Teresa like to come over um, and have dinner with us? And I said, sure, that'd be very nice. He said, we don't have very much that we can offer, but we can give you the Chesapeake Bay, you know, it's out their window. And um, they had gotten the idea that they should use that for the Lord. Sometimes you shouldn't give away all of your wealth. If you know the story of Francis Schaeffer and Labrie in Switzerland, it was a chalet, a very, very nice place. And people came in and out all the time. Many became Christians. Many drug addicts and homeless people stop in, meet the Lord, find the Lord, become Christians and go on doing wonderful things for the Lord for the rest of their life. But if they had given away their chalet, then there would have been no Labrie. And so sometimes... You shouldn't give away your wealth. But should you? I'm just asking, right? And if you lack wisdom, you might ask the Lord. And then the wisdom would be given you. Would you reduce your spending and your saving to increase your giving? Should you do that? What would Jesus do if he were in precisely your situation? Well, we know Jesus would want to be uber generous. Philippians 1.20 has the Apostle Paul saying, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. I don't want to have to hide my head in shame on any matter. In nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, be very brave, as always, 
this is always what I want to do. So now also being in prison and having his life threatened, be brave now. So now also Christ should be magnified, amplified in my body, whether I have to live or die to do it. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So in other words, we want Christ to have his reputation increased in our world. And we're willing to put our lives on the line for that. So obviously, we are willing to put our money on the line for that. In 2 Corinthians 8, 2, the Apostle Paul is talking about financial giving. And he says, the abundance of their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their generosity. So it's not like rich people are generous and they're the only ones who can be generous. Like, no, these people were poor. But they were still generous because generosity is a matter of the heart, not the bank account. In 2 Corinthians 8, 8, Paul says, I do not speak by commandment. I'm not telling you what to do, right? What would Jesus do? Just ask. Would you dare to ask him what he should do, uh, what you should do, what he would do if he was in your situation? So I do not speak by commandment. It's not a legalistic thing, but by occasion of the eagerness of others, other people have been so good at this. And here it is. And to to prove the sincerity of your love. The sincerity of your love might not be in what you spend or what you save, but how you reduce your spending and saving so that you can give. That's the sincerity of your love. And by the way, he says exactly the same thing a few verses later. He says, therefore, show them. Show everybody. Show them. And before the church is the proof of your love. And that's in the context of giving away some money. So sometimes it's what you do with your financial resources that really proves that you are in it to win it for Jesus. So what would Jesus do if he had your financial reserves? And how would Jesus spend it? Like, what are the priorities? So these are reminders. Galatians 6.10, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. And here it is, especially unto those who have the household of faith. Christians take care of Christians first and foremost. You say, well, what about the people who are lost? We're getting to them. But there is competition for the Christian dollar. And in first place is the Christian family. If the Christian family doesn't take care of its fellow Christians, then we have no testimony to a watching world. And besides that, the Lord is interested in the church. The church takes care of the church first and foremost. That doesn't mean we're skipping over everybody else. It means when it comes to competition for the church dollar, especially give that dollar to the household of faith. Haggai chapter 1, verse 5. Consider your ways, says the Lord. In verse 6, you've sown much and you bring in little. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. You're poor. You look for much and look, it came to little. Why? Because when you brought it home, I blew upon it. I blew it away. So you could find yourself in the position of giving money to people that the Lord is judging and the Lord is blowing away all the money you give as fast as you give it. Make sure you don't do that. Proverbs thirteen eighteen, Poverty and shame shall be to him that refuses instruction. You're not teachable. You won't listen to God. All right, pretty good chance you're going to be in poverty. And the Christian shouldn't throw dollar after dollar into your poverty when the Lord is trying to get you to be teachable. It's like running up to the prodigal son with a plate of food. And now he doesn't have to go back home to his father. Do not give the prodigal son a plate of food. What would Jesus do? He told us what he would do. First Timothy 5.11 is interesting. It's talking about widows. 
and how the church should take care of the widows. And what we find here is so interesting because here we are talking about believers side by side, the older widows who have behaved in a certain way and the younger widows who perhaps didn't have time to prove themselves in the same way. And you'll notice that there's even a priority among believers. Who do you give your money to? If two people are equally needy, you find out in this text who to give those dollars to in competition for the church dollar. So in chapter 5, verse 11, the apostle says, the younger widows refuse. Don't give them financial help. But they're believers. Yes, but don't give them financial help. Why? For when they've begun to grow decadent against Christ, that is to grow decadent while living off church funds, entitled, they will wish to marry, and they'll marry men who have the same attitude, decadent attitude as they do. In verse 12, having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith, and besides, they learn to be idle. We're not interested in funding somebody who's not working. They must work. And in this case, when we're talking about the older widows, they had to be faithful. So you see, we're not just throwing dollars at poor people. We're selective in how our dollars are being used. So when Jesus reduces material comforts and future financial prospects to the minimal amount wisdom might allow in order to do things like this. For example, would he give sacrificially to provide comfortable living for unashamed and unapologetic addicts, including homeless people? Should you fund such things sacrificially? When a person is going to take the money that you give them and use that to provide for their addiction, would Jesus want you to do that? I'm just asking. Would Jesus give sacrificially to somehow beautify the already pleasant residences of the so-called poor? Say, they're poor people. They're a pretty nice place. Would he somehow beautify the already pleasant residences of the so-called poor people who feel entitled to luxury while resenting God's interference in their lives? Or to fund an upgrade to their name brand wardrobe? Or to fund an upgrade to their cell phones, their entertainment devices, or inappropriate amusements? Would he give his money sacrificially for that, even though they are poor? Should you? The third item. Would Jesus give sacrificially to fund a financial upgrade for the so-called poor but pampered and entitled believers? But this guy's a believer, and he has to live in a apartment and he overspent his credit cards and he doesn't like the work yeah would he upgrade their conditions because they covet better possessions and living conditions would he give his money for that should you should that be your priority what would jesus do would he give sacrificially to fund secular mostly secular charities that have no appreciable gospel influence so i'm going to give my money to the children's hospital Well, we love the children's hospital. That's great. But if all the Christians give their money to the children's hospital, who's going to give their money to the gospel? You watch. The children's hospital will always be there. Question is, will the gospel always be available in churches, good Bible churches, in countries around the world? Because that's a real issue. Would Jesus give sacrificially to fund many missionaries in one place who are evangelistically unproductive due to the chronic hardness of heart of their target audience. We're asking, in light of what Jesus said, if you come to a place and they don't want to hear you, you don't just keep talking and talking. You shake the dust off your feet and you go to somebody else because maybe somebody else is interested. 
Jesus taught us, you're not going to cast your pearls before swine. They're just going to get upset. Go to the next person. The Apostle Paul said, the things you've heard from me among many witnesses, the, the same commit to faithful men. Nobody wants to hear that here? Okay, well, you'll, you'll go elsewhere and find somebody else. Jesus would not necessarily like for us to just keep slugging away at a hard-hearted area. We don't want to overlook any area. Everybody gets at least some gospel and some missionary. But maybe we should prioritize those who are willing to hear. The third item here, would Jesus give sacrificially to keep his own local church existing and functioning as a North Star guiding influence in his village, as well as a sturdy support network for a substantial band of sincere believers and a rescue station for the lost individuals they invite to join them in their journey to love and be loyal to Jesus. Would he support that? And I think he would support that very sacrificially. You know, it's not important that a church called Avalon Hills Bible Church exists. We don't need to exist. What needs to exist is a church, no matter what the church sign says. And it should be a Bible church, no matter what the sign says. You know, it's one of the reasons we like non-denominational church names. It's not about a denomination. We just want it to be a Christian church. They say, well, there are a lot of brands of Christian ones. What we mean is we just want the Bible to be basic. We want the, the Bible to be saturating what they do. Call it whatever you want. It doesn't have to be Avalon. But, you know, uh, there's this interstate out here and this road with 30,000 cars a day going by. There ought to be some representation of Jesus in a place like this. Who cares what we call it? Just in a place like this, there should be Christians around. And then people have cars and they can pull off the interstate and come here. It's easy. It just seems like to increase the Lord's pleasure and reputation in the world, there ought to be a group of Christians headquartered here doing whatever it is they can do. So that's why we should be here. Would Jesus give sacrificially for that? I think he would. And the last item, to fund evangelistically productive missionary endeavors. Would Jesus give sacrificially to fund some sort of gospel work that's, that's seeing a lot of productivity, wherever, all around the world? I think he'd give sacrificially for that. And so we're asking ourselves, what would Jesus do with his material comforts and his future financial prospects? Would he reduce them to as little as wisdom allows in order to accomplish the best possible outcome? I think he would do that. What would Jesus do? And you have to just work through that. So here's our challenge for the new year. We've talked about a lot of things. And here's what I'd like to leave you with. Number one, as I said in the beginning, I hope you'll work through these what would Jesus do questions. Work through them honestly in the presence of God and dare. If you get the leading, the guidance, the impression, you've asked for wisdom and the wisdom the Lord seems to be pressing upon you is that you should change something in your life as you work through these questions. Dare to ask the Lord in all honesty and then dare to bring your life into alignment with what you think he's leading you to do no matter what it costs you. And I hope you'll look at that today and tomorrow and maybe reorder some things in the coming year.
Number two, because the two-part mission agenda of Jesus is to save the lost and strengthen the saved. That's basically you know, the entire mission of the church from the New Testament. You want to save the lost and strengthen the saved because that's Jesus' agenda. Two parts. Resolve this year to use three text messages for this purpose with your phones. I don't know why it's like this, but something has happened in our culture so that text messages are the most polite way of talking to people, particularly if you're not sure they want to talk to you. So a typical voicemail will say, hey, sorry I missed your call. I'll return your call when I can, but you might want to shoot me a text message because that's faster. And it is. It's less risk. I had a friend long ago, don't try to figure out who this is, you'll never know. He was very, very Gabby. Very Gabby. And so the safest thing to do was to text him because then you can control how long this conversation is going to go. But he confided in me one day. He said, yeah, usually we go back and forth with two or three text messages. I think I'm just calling him like, ah, (laughs) don't do that. (sighs) Text messages are the most polite way of communication today in things that you are feeling out like the gospel and another person's busy schedule. Do they, do they even like me? Do they want to talk to me? So you send a text message, and it's enough. So my challenge is, every week of your life, for the coming year, you're going to send three text messages. Two text messages are going to be to the brothers and sisters. Um, any saved person you want to. And you can say anything you want. Some people say, well, you know, I don't really do texting. Oh, but because you love Jesus this year, you're going to do texting. You're going to. And you're going to text a brother or a sister just some nice little thing. Whatever you want to tell them. Uh, my little grandson was about maybe seven years old. And he just loves people. He met one of our neighbors. Neighbor's name is Bob. And... Uh, Bob was walking past one day and Reagan's on our front porch and it's like mm, mm, approaching 100 feet between our front porch and the street. And uh, Reagan's out there by himself. Bob is walking by. Reagan says, hi, Bob. Bob says, hi, Reagan. Reagan says, I had oatmeal. (laughs) That's the important thing. Uh, I had oatmeal. Uh... What are you going to text these people every week? What do you have for breakfast? Well, tell whatever you want. But but what what if all of the brothers and sisters say, "Well, I don't really know very many people at Avalon." Well, you will pretty soon because you'll be texting them, um, and and you just give people a chance to know you, and and you are encouraging them. You're saying nice things to them. It's like, huh? I didn't even know that guy liked me, and he gave me a text message. That's very nice. So every week of your life in the year 2024, I challenge you to send out two text messages to Christian brothers or sisters, whomever, to the believers. And then one text message every week to a lost person, whoever you want that to be, a relative, a neighbor, a coworker. And it doesn't have to be heavy. It's just going to be some way of saying, I'm thinking of you. Uh, a few years ago, we started saying this expression, I see you. 
That's what this text message is doing. You're going to text a lost person. You say, I don't even know any lost people. Oh, well, you will pretty soon because you'll be thinking about them and sending them texts. You're going to know them just fine. So what we can't do is just skip it all because our five hours of discretionary time in a typical workday are all spoken for with other things. And besides, we want to binge Netflix. No, we're not going to do that. We are going to text these people. We're going to reach out to people because it's what Christians do. It's our priority. It's the Jesus agenda. What would Jesus do if he had access to text messaging? He'd text message people. And so will you, I hope. The reason for all this, at the bottom of the slide, because we think that's the kind of thing Jesus just might do if he were in our place. What would Jesus do? All right, so can we stand and be dismissed with prayer? Father God, I ask that you will help us to honestly ask the question, what would Jesus do if he was in a situation like our situation? And I pray that we would lay the question before you in all these categories, and that if you lead us to do a particular thing, to change a thing, Uh, to stop doing something we have been doing, to start doing something we have not been doing, that we would have the courage, the, the love and loyalty to you to bring our lives into alignment. And I pray, Lord, that because of these text messages, somebody who might not feel very loved would feel more loved. And somebody who's not yet in our kingdom of light would come to our kingdom of light very soon. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.